Okay. Well, welcome back to the Paperless Federalist. My name is Justin. And I'm Kerry. Hey, Kerry. Uh, welcome back, and welcome back to our listeners. Uh, today, we're going to be touching base and uh, del- uh, doing a deep dive into Federalist Paper number 10. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Madison. The most famous Federalist Papers. Yes. And this is uh, Mr. Madison's first uh, foray and contribution into the uh, Federalist Papers. I know we had talked about previously about having a guest, and so some little housekeeping off the front end. Uh, my understanding is that Lori was... Unable to make it tonight. We had some logistical issues, so it's just you and I. And yeah, the- we're going to have a guest in a, uh, an episode coming up. It's just that mm-hmm. uh, tonight uh, we weren't able to get the plans to work out for everybody. That's fine. That's fine. I'm sure our listeners can be content with the sweet, smooth sounds of my voice and uh, and yours as well, Carrie. <laughs> the quiet storm, yes. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll be soothing and uh, very uh, therapeutic for anyone listening. I'll be as mellow as possible this episode. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, I'm gonna start off with a. Uh, I'm gonna start off here with a uh, quick overview of Federalist number. A mellow overview. A, a mellow, a mellow, a mellow, overview. mellow overview. Federalist paper number ten. Federalist paper number ten. All right, mellow <laughs> us on in. I will mellow us all into what has become known as one of the most important Federalist papers. It's interesting because as I was reading through things, uh, apparently for the first hundred or so years of the United States as we know it, uh, this paper was not really thought. People didn't give it a ton of attention, but it became more important over the last century. It has grown in its popularity. But with that said, uh, Federalist Number 10, the same subject continued, the Union as a safeguard against domestic faction and insurrection uh, from the New York Packet, Friday, November 23rd, 1787, author James Madison to the people of the state of New York. So Federalist Number 10 addresses the question here Madison gets into on how to best guard against factions, better known as groups of citizens with interests contrary to the rights of others or interests of the whole community. Uh, it's often cited by people who oppose political parties, but also this paper is cited by those who support political parties. And they argue that Madison foresaw uh, political parties as an inevitability and therefore essentially graced their existence. Um, Madison here in this paper argues that the proposed constitution would diffuse power so that it would make it more difficult for the unworthy candidates uh, to arise, essentially, and take hold. So, what does he mean by factions? Well, he defines factions as a number of citizens, whether amounting to a minority or a majority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of, of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. And so, then he asks the question, you know, how do we limit their effect? Uh, he sees you can do this in either two methods. You can either remove, <laughs> you can either remove them, uh, or you can control their effects. So as far as uh, removing removing the, their causes, you can go about this by destroying liberty. He says, uh, and which sounds, and he he acknowledges this is worse than uh, a worse idea than than having factions themselves, uh, because doing this you take away by destroying liberty, you'd end up. Removing people's uh, ability to assemble, freedom of speech, etc. So you, you you take away the tools that would allow for factions to even exist in the first place. Uh, the other option is to uh, give every person and every citizen the same passions, opinions, and interests. And he views this one as just not being practical at all. Um, Communism. It is. Communism. It is. Well, <laughs> uh, and we'll get there. And so you know, he eventually he says, you know what, the latent causes of factions are basically sown in the very nature of man. And he kind of goes over. Uh, the different types and causes of factions. Ultimately, he decides that mankind is much more disposed to, to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their own common good. Uh, so he seems kind of dim and gloom there. He, he decides that the most common... Original sin. Huh? Yeah. Original sin. Original sin. Uh, original sin. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that mankind's just born to uh, to cause to oppress each other. Apparently, then he goes on and says, you know, the most common source of 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 causing factions and division amongst men is owning property. Uh, essentially, think of this as he lists different kinds, but think of it as creditors versus debtors. Or essentially the haves versus the have-nots in society, okay? You know, and then he noticed that the uh, the most numerous party or the most powerful faction is usually the one that's going to prevail. And he talks about uh, taxes as another example. And, and he says, you know, if you're the majority party uh, and you're the more powerful one, every dollar you pluck out of the pocket of the minority party is a dollar you don't have to take out of yours. So it's another example of where a majority rule can oppress and really run a roughshod over uh, through taxation over a minority, you know. And he says, you know, it's ridiculous to think that their enlightened state, enlightened statesmen, will be able to adjust uh, the clashing interests because um, they might not always be at the helm of government. Uh, there might be people who are not so enlightened and good-hearted uh, and good-natured uh, at the helm of government. He talks and he says, most of the time, remote interests must be taken into account, but those usually fail due to the immediate self-serving interests at the expense of another group or at the common good. Uh, and so he concludes and he says, you know, causes of factions then just, they're not, you can't get rid of them. They're going to happen. So then he sets off and he says, well, we need to control the effects of factions. And he says, well, look, if a faction is is made up of a minority group, a smaller subset of the population, uh, then the normal democratic processes can kind of root these out and uh, you can just have a vote and, and it'll kind of take care of itself. But when he says, when the majority of a particular population is a faction, uh, then democracy enables it and they can use the democratic processes to essentially attack the public good or attack the rights of individuals or attack the rights of a small subset of the population, a smaller faction. And here you get into the idea of this, the tyranny of the majority and protecting the minority from the tyranny of the majority. So he goes on and he says the challenge is to uh, secure the rights of individuals in the public good and at the same time preserve the spirit in the form of the democratic government. But how do you do this? And here again, he goes and he says, well, either a majority faction must be prevented out altogether and just prevent a majority from ever becoming one political party or one faction, or their ability to function needs to be shut down. And he says, look, morals and religious motives, they're not going to get it done. Pure democracies don't work because you've seen those and history has seen small, pure democratic states just basically implode. And he says, a republic type of government is the answer. He points out two differences between strict democracies and democratic republics. Uh, first one is that the delegation of the ability to govern is is taken from the, the entire populace and given to a subset, uh, an elected few, uh, to then legislate and govern the, the, the masses. But that this structure also allows for the government to be able to control uh, a much larger uh, landmass and a much larger population uh, than a strict, uh, straight, uh, democratic, everyone voting on every law uh, type of uh, democracy would ever be able to do. He talks and he says, look, elected officials are least likely to succumb to the temporary or partial considerations. But then he acknowledges that this might not always be the case. And so he says, well, the next question is decide, you know, what's better, small republics or big republics? And he says, you know what, bigger is better. He said the number of elected officials must be large enough to guard against just a few rogue people working in the legislature. They have to be small enough so as to not become bogged down. You know, your legislature can't be consisting of thousands and thousands of people because they just become bogged down and nothing would ever get done. So you got to have that not too hot, not too cold sort of balance 
the Goldilocks version of your legislature. And he said the larger that they're of a voting population that you have, if you have a large democratic republic and you have a large actively engaged voting populace, it'll be harder to corrupt the, the mass uh, by some um, nefarious person. And that you if you extend the sphere, then you have a very large variety of parties, a large variety of interests, and this decreases the likelihood that any one faction will be ever be able to control a majority and will rise to power. He goes and concludes that, you know, factions may take hold in a particular state, may inflame the entire state, but that the nation as a whole will guard against because that inflammation would never, he does not believe, uh, would ever spread throughout all the states that make up the United States. And that's why the uh, he, he basically concludes with that thought here in Fellers 10. So, Kerry, that's my 10-minute summation, um, or five-minute-ish summation uh, of Fellers number 10. Uh, did you have any spots that you wanted to jump off uh, on as far as uh, what you thought of it? Not any particular spots so much as the whole okay. of the paper. It seems interesting to me how Madison here is continuing the message of Hamilton insofar as he's saying, oh, no, Montesquieu is incorrect when he says that you have to have this small republic to make everything work because people, the bigger the, the land size gets, the more difficult it will be for people to really interact with each other. In point of fact, a large republic will work better because the various factions throughout this very large land area will all cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. And let's, I mean, let's be clear. When he's saying factions, he's really talking political parties. I mean, or at least a political... Yeah, I disagree with that. I, I, you know, when I sat down and read, read it, I thought it wasn't. Well, before I read it, I thought, oh, this is going to be the paper where he talks about political parties are bad. Well, I guess I'd say... And then I, when I read it, I didn't read it that way. You know, let me amend what I said. I, I think a political party would be an example or a type of faction that he is suggesting that we guard against. I would agree with that. You know, it's 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 one it's, form of it's one form of faction. And I guess it's the modern version of factions that you and I and maybe any listener out there now would when when you say faction and when you read his definition of a faction, at least for me, that's the version that popped into mind. Um, now there are other political. This is what we're used to seeing. It is what we're used to seeing on a we're inundated on a daily uh, basis by by both uh, Democratic and Republic uh, Republican Party messages, as well as some independent messages. Green Party. There are some other political parties that are floating around out there, but certainly none that are quite the size of the the primary two. Um, well, and that and, and so that if we took it to just being parties, mm-hmm. I think that tends to undermine Madison's point. Because, well, so, so, you know, we are a non-parliamentary system you know, yeah. where there's typically just two parties. And I think that Madison's argument works best. The whole point of his argument is that with all these multitude of factions and multitude of interests, you're not just going to have two gigantic parties yeah. that everyone splits off into. It's not going to be like the Cold War where there's just two poles. And people are going to have dissimilar interests. They're going you know, to have church interests. They're mm-hmm. going to have regional interests. They're going to have policy interests, things that they want the government to do for them. They're going those circles of interest aren't going to overlay each other. Now, in actual fact, how it lines up, uh, I think that uh, the fact that people tend to put all a lot of the circles do tend to line up and want to do political parties. So that's that's what I started thinking is like it, and I I found myself initially again saying ah here Mr. Madison founding father 
you got it wrong. Your vision was short-sighted. What you did is just not applicable to today. And you couldn't have foreseen things. And therefore, I know more than you. And there are times, I will admit, <laughs> when, uh, when I go down that path. Coming at directly <laughs> no, there. but I mean, I'll go down that path. And then the more I s- spend time and I look at it, I stack a step back and I think, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe they know more than I do. <laughs> and I'll give you what I'll say. Because my initial thought, so. but here's how. It's because when I was reading this and I was thinking of factions in terms of the modern two major political parties, Democratic Republic, I thought, wow, Mr. Madison, you put in place or you try to put in place here this diffused power of, of, of diffusing power of the government through the federalist system to the, to the limited powers of the federal government, to the state legislatures, to local parties, and that your argument that the diffusing of power over a large nation and multiple states and regional interests would prevent any uh, rise of one mass faction to consume top to bottom the entire system and therefore corrupt and and crush the interests in the of the the minority uh, party or of the individual. And I thought, you know what, your argument has failed. The modern era has demonstrated that it has failed. And that's the way in which I was I was leaning and I was thinking about attacking this paper was was through that lens. And then I started to think to myself again. I took a step back and I I was thinking about the the current congressional efforts this year to repeal and replace the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. And there I think, wow, you know, the branches of the federal government are aligned with one faction, the Republican Party. They have all of the uh, both houses in the, in, the, in the legislature and the presidency aligned right now. And why can't why can't they get it done? And, you know, when I realized I took a step back and I thought about more, you know, he he argues here that or he says, you know, you may have even one group take hold. But they're they're going to be coming from so many different spheres, even if they're aligned under the same umbrella, that they're, they're different. At the end of the day, their interests aren't really going to be truly aligned. And I think you saw that play out I over mean, the last six months with the modern Republican Party in Congress. Three votes, though. No, I know, but like- I know, but look at look what happened in the House, and you had all the different pushing and pulling. And, and while they're all under the, the, a lot of them are under the umbrella of the Republican Party per se, you know, as a whole, they are unaligned in special interests within the Republican Party on how to go about repealing and replacing, uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. And I think you saw a lot of the same drama the playing out in the Senate. Inspiring gridlock is, though, honestly. No, but, <laughs> no, but, if that's, the, if that's the silver lining. You know, but that's the thing, like, that's the point of, in a way of the system, Madison argues, is that the gridlock ensues in some ways to prevent any one group or any one faction from running roughshod over everybody else that's not a part of it. And the gridlock, I mean, in my eyes, is a saving grace. It, it's the it's the backstop uh, that prevents anything from going too far off the rails in any one direction. And that gridlock is there by design is i guess is is my point because he talks and he says you're not gonna get rid of factions you got to limit their imp- their effect and their ability to function and i think he helped design a system that diffused power over many different levels of government to ensure that you would never have that total sweeping force that would wash away and oppress a section of the country that wasn't on uh, i don't think it know. works out as much I, I think he's wrong more than he's right you think so that- okay 
Because so I'm, I'm not, I'm not convincing you is what you're saying. <laughs> well, because even in your example, it's still just a bipolar example. It's still just two party and it's, you know, and the one party well, just barely didn't have enough votes. But there's no the Madison plan is not just you know A is fighting B and sometimes even though A has more part more power A doesn't win. His argument is there's you know A through Z factions you know what and, and they don't line up and up until and they up, all are stopping the bilateral yeah. conflict from ripping us apart listen up until i mean maybe this will date myself but i think up until the mid 80s you would have had multiple different factions and you wouldn't have such a and b tribalism occurring in the nation where you would have you know conservative democrats and liberal republicans and there'd be a a, a spectrum of of sub factions within each party, uh, uh, I, I don't you think know. it took Madison that long to be wrong. Yeah, okay. I think, he was right. wrong, I think he was wrong long before you and I were born. I think the most famous and noteworthy example is not long after his time, in in complete contravention of his argument of how things were going to work. You had the nation breaking up into the Southern slave power and the Northern abolitionist faction. Mm -hmm. And the, the effort to stop that argument from happening and to stop the war from happening, the civil war from happening was the attempt of Madison's argument to exert itself. You know, the idea of we can compromise things. There's other interests we could put in to try to, you know, distract and mollify this argument by, you know, well, we're going to give your state some other goodies if you maybe let some of your slaves free or, you know, if you, you know, pass this Fugitive Slave Act, you know, trying to put the lid uh, on the argument before it boiled over, but it didn't work, it didn't work. And that is the best example of well, something showing that Madison's wrong because in the end, you're, there was just the two factions and the, any other faction couldn't compete with those two parties because one, as the argument got more and more intense, Everything else fell away. So you're in 1861. Uh, yeah. It only mattered if you were on the northern side of the southern. Well, side. see, okay, mattered. and see, okay, and so in 1861, both sides of a particular argument developed a litmus test. Right? You had a litmus test that you either passed and you're the part of our tribe, or you're you failed and you're part of the other tribe. And and mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to be all doom and gloom here, but you know what's been happening over the last you know 20 years during our lifetime here with the two political parties. Right? They've gone from being uh, both being a spectrum of generally, uh, you know, interests and, 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 and willingness, you know, big tent parties, both of them to accepting, uh, different viewpoints within the party to now both mm. parties really having a litmus test, right? On the, on their, uh, right, you've got obviously the abortion issue is a litmus test. You cannot say that, I mean, I mean, maybe you can, but, uh, I mean, sure, mm -hmm. you, sure you can, but I don't know how successful you would really be if you said you were, mm -hmm. you know, pro-choice and try to be a Republican. On the other hand, anymore, the healthcare issue has become a litmus test for the Democratic Party, where you know you are in favor of single-payer, national, unified healthcare, or you're not a Democratic, or you're not going to be a successful Democratic in, in, in the current party. Now, it happens to be that I think the litmus tests for the parties are not the same litmus test like it was during the Civil War where you either, you know, believe in slavery or you don't. And that has, there's yeah. one national litmus test, but both parties mm -hmm. are becoming uh, extremely polarized. Um, and and here you almost are, carrying your argument you're making here about Madison being wrong and failing. Uh, you, you sound very much like the 
the Anti-Federalists, um, and I think it was George Clinton that talked about, uh, you know, ultimately this, this version that of this large democratic republic that the Federalists were arguing for is going to have be nothing more than a, mm-hmm. ho- a house divided against itself, uh, which, you know, later... Well, before you go into jo- George Clinton, yeah, go ahead. who says a lot of crazy things, uh, <laughs> I want to respond briefly to what you Shoot. just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is that, you know, my point with the Civil War example is to say that this is not just a phenomenon of modern times. It's not just that modern political parties are this bipolar system where you're one or the other and nothing else. Yeah. It, there's nothing new under the sun there. I I tend to think that uh, Madison was being overly optimistic generally when he thought that you're going to have factions that are going to be too weak because they're comp- competing against other factions. Most of the time, you know, when public issues have gotten to a certain level of intensity, they do tend to trump everything else. Yeah. Uh, and the, the idea that you're going to have these people who are crossing faction lines based on what particular issue they're advocating for, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to play out. Not in our system. I mean, it, what's curious to me is that... Maybe not in our lifetime. Yeah. It, will, it, will, it will work, <laughs> but it's not our system. It, it would be a parliamentary system where... You know, you go to Germany, you go to other countries that have parliamentary systems, and you have parties where they just, their interest is on, like, the environment, or their interest yeah. is on business, and they that's their main issue, you know. and they will form coalitions with other parties yeah. to push their issue, and then they'll join another coalition if they need to, to push their issue. Well, that. That does make it work, but that's not our system. Okay, I think that we are experiencing the mentality of the current time when you're when you're how you're viewing our system as being with no one's crossing party lines to get something done. I think that there have been periods of times where our leaders in the legislature, in the federal legislature, especially uh, at the federal level, have in fact crossed party lines when the nation's interests have needed it. But uh, I think there's an exception know, there, rather. But it's it's so again it then you're not really talking about the system being a problem. You're just talking about maybe the people who are, you know, you, you're coming back to user error. Um, I I think... Uh, but... I don't... Uh, Madison's argument that he team seems to make is everything will be great when we have good men to rule us. Well, as we've said before, if you have good rulers who are naturally wise, then it doesn't yeah. matter what system you have. It's true. If your system depends on having these philosopher kings to be mm-hmm. in charge of it, that's not, that is a problem with the system because yeah. you can't always count but, on the best people. It's got to be a strong enough system to work even with the worst people. I agree with that. And I don't think that he's saying that here because if the, but he does. No, he, he does. does, but that he does. And then <laughs> in the next sentence he says, but that's not always going to be the case. But let, let's not to get too whiplash as we go through this, but you know, when he says, look, you've got, Let's just kind of go through the outline of things here. You know, at the top, he says, you're going to have factions, and that's just going to happen. Okay. He talks about the ways you can get rid of factions, and both of them are either impractical or or worse than factions themselves. Okay. And so we can kind of, I think, agree with he's he's right there. Right. You're never going to imprint every citizen of the country to think and feel and have the same amount of property and, and same viewpoints so that there is no disagreement. You know, and therefore no purpose, no reason for factions. Like, that's just not going to happen. 
and then to Jefferson, I think would disagree with you, but you, but I'll come back to that. Okay, all right. Uh, well, no, fire away. Go ahead. I mean, we're talking about you know ways in well, which. Well, I mean, you know. I think that with the Jefferson ideal of the United States is serving the majority interests. You know, back at that time, demographically, the vast, vast majority of American citizens, numbers wise, mm-hmm. were small farmers. You mm-hmm. know, they had you know double digit acres of farmland. Yeah. Um, maybe triple digits. And, you know, they had a small amount of uh, land to farm. They farmed it every day. They produced most of what they consumed. Mm-hmm. And in Jefferson's mind, you know, his model of government was the government should serve their interests, not the 5% of the people who are tradesmen, for example. Yes. And so I think the Jeffersonian model is, well, if almost everybody is one thing, just serve their interests and they'll be, they'll be fine. Of course, that didn't work out too well for him when he became president because yeah. uh, when he bargained England or Great Britain, then there was nobody around who really was uh, great at making anything. <laughs> uh, so, But his position was, well, most people do share the common interests. Oh, okay, but Madison takes it a step further, though. I feel like in this paper, he said the only way you're going to eliminate factions altogether is take away... The parts of government that would allow them to form, destroy liberty, right? Get rid of uh, the ability to assemble, get ready to have, yep. you know, get rid of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Like everyone just, you know, a ton of times just walking along, thinking and doing and feeling the same thing. Um, and it is, is the second version, which is that every person, not 90%, not Jeffersonian idealism, you know, like serving the 90% or 95%. I mean, that, well, you it, just ignore everybody else. Just, but, the, you know, what. Well, that's maybe what Jefferson's it's saying, but my, my point is Madison is suggesting that it, like, it, the only way you get rid of the faction is to have no disagreement, because if there's no disagreement, there's no reason for a faction. And that's and he labels that and he says that's just impractical. Like, that's not – that will never occur where everyone agrees. That, Madison is more right today than he even was back then. Yes. Because there are more varied and diverse economic interests now. Yes. Than there were back in colonial times, and so then he gets into this idea of like property and the division of property and the different levels of owning property: creditors, debtors, uh, landowners versus mercantile uh, interests. You know, you're going to have different interests about property and what type of property people have, and whether or not they have property, whether or not they owe debt, or if they're or if they have money coming to them. Um, and he's right. And all these will be little factions, and they're all going to compete against each other, and and that's going to cause problems, is a, a point of his. And and, the, and now, lest we think, I think, because initially I thought, wow, is he actually arguing for communism and a redistribution of wealth? And you kind of, no, yeah, you kind of choked about. But I know, but I know he's not doing it. But here's the thing, he's actually arguing the reverse. He he's worried, I think, that the unwashed masses, the you know that that the. Uh, that form the majority. Like if you have a straight direct democracy type of government, the majority uh, uh, population wise will be a faction of people that uh, are the large masses of people that he is not a part of. He's, he's one of the elite large, you know, wealthier owners of land and along with many of the other men in the room. And they wanted to ensure a system that would protect their smaller faction of wealthy landowners uh, from and their ability to have property and prosper and prosper from the majority to coming to power through this government 
and wipe it out and redistributing all of their wealth across the uh, all the people in the in the country. Um, so it is with some sense of self-serving that I think uh, Mr. Madison was was arguing for this system of government. If you really think of it through that oh, lens, huge degree of self-serving. Okay, huge degree of <laughs> so, self-serving. Um, I've got a little anecdote about that. Go ahead, fire away. <laughs> One of the best examples of the self-servingness of the argument, and I'm not saying it was incorrect, but uh, in the early in the early days of the republic, I think before the, the constitution, Mr. Madison himself wanted to buy was trying to buy 300 acres of land in upstate New York to get into the land speculation business. And so he was trying to go around getting money to uh, fund this investment. Mm-hmm. But there, was, there wasn't any place in America to get that kind of credit. America didn't have much hard currency. So trying to get help from abroad, his friend uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe he wrote Thomas Jefferson and said to him, hey, while you're over there in uh, France, could you go and find some of your French banker friends and see if they can loan me enough money to buy this land? And Jefferson, in letter form, pretty much roared up, you know, laughed uproariously at Madison, saying, "Look, George Washington himself right now can't get a loan from Europe to fund his <laughs> Potomac Company to try to develop the Potomac River Valley, like he wants to do." Says. You have no chance whatsoever to get a French bank to loan you any money, yeah. because what was going because of what we talked about prior weeks, where individual states were going around printing state currency, Rhode Island bucks, yeah, Rhode Island bucks. That's exactly right. Another example, Rhode Island only. So wait, hold on. And are you are you saying that the citizens of of of, of early American Rhode Island? they themselves were frustrating Mr. Madison's ability to pursue his dreams? Of course they were. <laughs> they, they were frustrating everyone. I believe even George Washington himself had some choice words about Rhode Island. I, I've heard recently that at the time, there was a, a, a many individuals that were so frustrated with him, they began to call them Rogue Island. Rogue Island? I think it's probably a fitting uh, fitting moniker for them. So I'm going to just call, start calling them Rogue Island. Rogue Island. But it wasn't okay. just Rogue Island. It wasn't just Rogue Island. It was a lot of states were printing paper money, but also, uh, you know, they'd print this paper money, and it, and they'd say that debts that people took out in hard currency could be paid off in paper money, and you had to take it. And that was effectively canceling debts. Mm-hmm. And so that's why no European banks were willing to invest in America or extend credit lines because – no, no one wanted to put venture capital, for lack of a better term, into, yeah. term, into America because they were worried that if things went south or at the whim of the state legislatures, mm-hmm. then their entire you know obligation that was owed to them could just be wiped out. Mm-hmm. Which you know, in the flip side of things, nowadays, one of the reasons that American uh, the American economy and American dollar is so strong now is because. You know we're the uh, we're the Lannisters of the world. We we don't we always pay our debts not necessarily quickly, but we've never uh, we you know we don't pass laws saying oh, we don't we don't owe anybody anything anymore. We're not we're not we're going to nationalize this debt. Or we're going to nationalize these business interests. But uh, 
So yeah, self-serving for Madison because he's never going to be able to buy his land unless he gets a loan <laughs> from France. Never going to get a loan from France yeah. unless they write a new constitution that includes in it uh, a ban of the ability of states to impair the right to contract or to cancel debts. Yeah. So. But that that wasn't just something fast. Okay. So uh, we recognize then there's going to be factions and you're going to have to deal with them. And so Madison, mm-hmm. Madison moves on to, okay, how do you control the effect of the faction? And he said, if it's a small faction, basically, you know, uh, if the small group people get out of line, you can always vote them out of office. Um, and, and you know, the democratic process would would take hold and, and deal with it, and it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, but then what do you do when the majority is them themselves a faction or a group um, or a political party? And they've got control of enough of the government that they can basically run roughshod over uh, what's in the best interest for the nation as a whole or what's in the best interest of a particular individual or subset of group of smaller, smaller group of individuals. How, how are they going to be checked back into place so that the rights of the individual or the minority are not overwhelmed by the tyranny of the majority? And that is the central, I think, his biggest question about how do you go about doing it. And he says, look, you know, relying on this idea that you're going to have morals or religious motives to sort of make sure that everybody does the right thing uh, is just it's just not going to happen. It's not it won't happen. It won't work. Yeah. You know, and he says, you know, when you have a large republic. You're going to have the cream of the crop that's going to be there in the federal government. And ideally, those enlightened statesmen are going to be there and everything's going to work out. But that's not always going to be the case. So I, I really mm-hmm. thought he was going down that path that, you know, you and I had discussed previously and even earlier in this episode. And I'm like, wow, did he really do this? But he checks himself and he says, no, that's not always going to be the situation. So he I, I really think but his answer is squabbling factions are going to save us, which I don't know. I don't think really plays out in reality. His action, yeah, his answer is basically you need to break the power up over enough different levels of government and over enough states, over a large democratic republic. The bigger, the better. Uh, and if you do that, power will be so fractured that it will be impossible, essentially, for any one faction to gain enough power to then, you know, Run it, run, run the country off the rails and crush uh, the rights or interests of a particular group of people. And you know, I'm on the fence as to whether or not he's right on this because there are times in I so want him to be right. So do I. I think, you know, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, I, you think, I, at first glance, you feel like, oh, this should be right. It should because be because, <laughs> in a way, it's just another version. You think of. The checks and balances mm-hmm. in the Constitution that it puts in between the different branches of government and between the different, you know, powers that are given to each branch and, and keep in mind each other, but also the limitation yeah. of power of the Constitution. Yes, but Let's I don't think it does. Work. I think it's different. It doesn't work because I think the check, the checks and balances within the different branches of government, even when they're all the same party, at some point they do start to assert institutional interests. But I don't think that the factions argument works as well. I don't. Maybe it's because there's, you know, unlike these the branches of government where there's formal structure of mm-hmm. the powers 
and limitations they have, these generic factions he thinks could exist, they're just out there. And there's no, there's no formality about them. They're just running rampant, and, and uh, there's, they're not structured. They're just whatever the world makes them. Yeah, and I think you and I maybe are taking this uh, a little different view here. I view what Madison's saying as that the Constitution sets into the framework not only the separation of powers between legislative, executive, and judicial, but that a separation of power between federal, the federal level and the state level. Because, and you, you hinted at it in the sense that you know the Constitution is supposed to have the limited, enumerated powers, and those are the only things that the legisl- federal legislature is supposed to be able to address and therefore enact or deal with. Um, we've talked and hinted at, and maybe we'll get into a little bit more here, that that, that limited a power has really been eroded uh, over the last 50 plus years with the Commerce Clause um, and it's in modern interpretation but of the Commerce Clause. But I think what Madison realized is that there's going to be these factions and some of them could be very quite large. But if you if you force that you have a large democratic republic with many states and many state legislatures and people coming from different spheres and different self-interests, I think his hope and his idea and the premise behind this paper is that it will be so splintered that it would be impossible for one organization to assume a uniform purpose throughout state legislatures or the majority of state legislatures and and, and the federal level and the state levels then would all align for some sort of... Uh, interest in just that subset of, of, of people and to the disregard into the maybe the, the harm of other subsets and individuals. And I, I think that's the, the two that's, ways that that's wrong. That's his theory. And I think it is being tested today in a way that it has never been before, because I think in the, See, I don't think it's, I don't think, I think today so, it's unique. I think it is. Come today on. Com, com, I think, I think communication and the information and flow of people and and knowledge and marketing and, and messaging and the modern political animal and, and the modern political party is a different beast than this country and the world has ever seen. And they're able to align and and uh, I think we just see that because we live in these times. I don't I don't I don't think information f- flew around the country in the same fashion today as it did in eighteen sixty. I mean yeah, but you how know, far are we ahead of, for example, the 1940s, 50s, 60s? Well, I mean, there wasn't Facebook, but... It's instantaneous it now. Shows, there was movies, yeah. there was uh, television. People still went to the movies to get the news during World War II. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, it, the information flow is instantaneous now. And I think that allows for an alignment of interests and messaging and schemes and plans uh, by any one faction, top to bottom, in a structural way that wasn't able to be done before. Let's see, when have we had, a, when in America has there been a, a third party or a third faction that's really broken up the power of the two parties? Maybe it's intensified now, but America does not have a strong third party Oh well, history. You know, I mean, no, I know. Those were charismatic individuals. I think that the way that Madison's theory is not working is, in Madison's, in Madison's idealized view of how things are going to work, if there are factions, 
and there are people who belong to that faction, but they also have an interest that goes sort of against some of what that main faction of theirs is doing, mm-hmm. that they will break away with from that faction and pursue their own interests, um, and that will mo- moderate and reduce the power of the main faction. But in practice, that's not how it seems to work. Well, what they'll do instead is they'll not leave the tent. They'll stay inside it, and they might try to advance their, their position within the party, Yes, but they won't leave the party. And my best example of that and maybe less now than 10, 20 years ago. Take, take for example, the log cabin Republicans. Okay. You know, they are, you know, people who, you know, again, probably more in the past than now, but when the Republican Party was, you know, not a big fan of homosexuality and, you know, was, you know, moving against it, trying to stop it, mm-hmm. you know, these people were, you know, people who would, they were Republicans, Mm-hmm. But they also wanted a more tolerant or a more accepted, more acceptance of, you know, homosexual rights in, in yeah. the nation at large. Mm-hmm. And in Madison's theory, I think, in Madison's plan, they would say, well, you're not doing anything for us. We're going to leave and we're going to join this other group that will help us. And it might be you, it might be the Democrats, it might be a third party. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens. They stay. Same way with, you know, like the Green Party maybe as compared to mainstream Democrats. They might want a much more aggressive stance on certain environmental issues, but, you know, what, to what extent when the push comes to shove and they got to vote for a president or vote for a congressman, do they well, leave the party? So my, my point with the mentioning the Affordable Health Care Act earlier was – it was an example where here I'm, 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 I'm was reading this and I was ready to decry and say, ah, Mr. Madison, you're wrong. You've got it wrong. The modern political party is proving your system to be fallible and to be subject to factionism, you know, and that we've now invented a system that can overwhelm the structure that's been put in place by the Constitution. And that's the modern political party. Okay. And I was, very much on on board with that thought prior, you know, coming to this, and I, I just the 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 ACA repeal and replace debate uh, made me take a step back, and I was thinking about it about how it didn't work and why it failed, and I it's my understanding that the reason why it failed was because the subset sections of within the the controlling political party with the Republican, you know, those sub factions within the larger faction. Um, really kind of derailed it. And they couldn't align their interests because they were coming from these different states with different interests and different constituencies that they needed to answer to. And so that the large Democratic Republic system is is actually functioning in a way that Madison intended, which was to frustrate one group from controlling and moving forward, you know, with uh, you know, regardless of what uh, another subset seemed to f- felt about a particular issue, lest you think that uh, any one individual you know can't change things. You know, Mr. McCain came back and he got a lot of heat for voting to move the debate from subcommittees and, and to the full Senate. Uh, I believe is how it happened, and he advanced the health care debate in the Senate and then turned around and killed it. Uh, and then in doing so. 
really ended the Senate's efforts to to um, uh, uh, repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. In uh, him doing that, uh, he was functioning still within the faction of the Republican Party, but he was not aligned with what the Republican Party as a whole wanted, and was he was doing what he felt was best. Uh, for the nation, but I think also best for his particular constituencies that he served. And I think that is an example of the system that Madison argued for here in this Constitution, uh, working where... So you think there's a health care faction? Well, my, my point with the talking about the ACA is that here you have one, one large faction, a national faction, the Republican Party, that has had one very specific goal for eight years now, repeal and replace the ACA. And when they finally obtained the enough, enough legislative ability in, in, in the executive branch at the federal levels to maybe do it, they're breaking down because of the sub-factions within themselves. And, and their efforts broke down because of that. And that is an example of the system Madison's arguing in the Constitution playing out in modern time, where even, he's, even if a large faction takes hold... Because people are going to be coming from different states and representing different constituencies, their their true alignment will never be there. Um, See, I guess I don't credit that to a, a, another faction. I just I credit those to more individual acts. I mean, I get what you're saying that they represent different constituencies, yeah. but I guess I view it much more through the lens of it's the diffusing of power. The plans put to repeal. The repeal or replace or just repeal, whatever. Yeah. They were of such, you know, it was a bridge too far. And there's certain people who didn't want to cross that bridge. I guess I don't think of them. Because in my mind, if I'm thinking there's a competing faction, there has to be some degree of agenda, unity, and not just a a sense of, you know, we're not going to do this, but what do we affirmatively want to do? Yeah. To me, that the group of non-voters don't really cross that threshold. They just so, weren't on board. Well, I guess like when I looked at it in the, I mean, you looked at the struggles that they had in the House and you had the Freedom Caucus, which is a subsection of the Republican Party's majority in the House. Uh, I know that, and and the, there started to form a faction within the Republican Party in the House of Representatives of legislatures from states that had taken a large amount of federal money under the ACA and did not want to see that money go away versus other ones that were had not take states that had not taken the money and could care less and they wanted this funding to go away and so you saw a division and a formation of factions within the House of Representatives Republican Party section of the House of Representatives uh, arguing over you know how does that funding work or not work or does it go away does it not go away. And, and yes, they're all Republicans, and yes, they all wanted to repeal and replace, but they could not agree, and they had a much argue, a large argument over how to do it because they started to coalesce into sub-factions within themselves. And that diffusing of power over a large democratic republic that Madison argues here in the Constitution, in this paper, and for in the, in the Constitution as adoption, is, is, is the system at work that he is he's attempting to to argue for um and i yeah, I, I see it as a system that's not working because yeah well a lot of people do I a think lot. <laughs> what is arguing for was not a single continuum line of polarity 
the the debate I hear you talk that I feel you're talking about is there's this continuum between A and Z about how far someone is okay with a policy going on one issue, and you had one group that wanted to go all the way to Z, and maybe a few people didn't want to go, you know, past yeah. M or N. Well, I, so like, so we're out. No, but they're all talking about the same policy. Whereas what I think that Madison was trying to talk about was you're going to have people whose most important policy is yeah. on a completely different thing. Some people will care about, you know, a well, particular um, tax rate they want to get. Yes. Other people will care about, you know, religious freedom. Other people will care about military benefits. But that, that, and that line of... We're not going to walk into a death, life yeah. and death struggle about one issue because people will care about different things. You know, they'll, they'll sort of act like the nation yes. of England or Great Britain in international politics of, you know, England was famous for lining up and picking and choosing different allies during the Napoleonic Wars and other wars of, to, to get advanced what they right. wanted the most of the time. But I don't think that history's played out that way. The, the line of argument, though, from A to Z about the sliding scale in the ACA, though, is really, I mean, that's the disagreement and the argument of the sub-factions within the Republican Party, which is only one faction at play in the federal government. You, I mean, you're not even talking about the independents or the, Dem the Democratic Party that's at play at the legislature as well, which are other factions within the system itself. So I'm not suggesting that Madison is saying that, you know, you're going to have just this sliding scale. It, you have multiple factions within the federal government at this point talking about repeal and replace or don't or modify health care. But within the one fact faction that wants to repeal and replace, you saw the breakdown of their ability to do so because they're coming and representing a large democratic republic with separate sub-faction interests within the Republican Party. And that, I think... But ultimately, you know, in the two-party system, does not matter? Because you only have two choices. I mean, that's the thing ultimately is. At the end of the day, yeah. ultimately, in a non-parliamentary system like we have, yeah. that's where Madison's idea breaks down is... At the end of the day, you've got to pick one of two sides. Well, you know, that was as true now as during the Civil War. And, and you know, you might have these log jams that happen, like with this Affordable Care Act thing now, uh, but we're not ready to go that far. We're, gonna, yeah. we're not going to commit that. But, the, but ultimately, those you know, but, the senators aren't going to switch parties. No, 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 but the, but the point... It just it slightly moderates the position. Mad right? Madison's point, though... And the system that is set up under the Constitution that he argues for is that because it's a large democratic republic and you have representatives coming from different regions, even of, of a broader set of regions than he even, he even realized at the time when he was arguing for it, um, is that even if you have all of these guys who say they're all Republic guys and girls, men and women who say they're Republicans, they're going to be coming at it and say, yeah, I'm a Republican, but I'm this kind of Republican or I'm that kind of Republican. And, and they're not always all going to agree, even if they're still under the under umbrella of Republicanism or the same with being a Democrat. I mean, there's there's different versions of Demo Democrats and they're not always going to be able to align once all they're all there in the in the Washington, D.C. And if, even if they have both chambers of the legislature and and the executive, they might not get things done because they're coming from different regional interests and they themselves are sub-factions. are they regional interests? I mean, the, I think so. the regional interests, they're swing states. I mean, that's, that, it's not that Maine no, no, no. is uniquely no, but special but I mean, Maine. People in it's Texas and, and Nebraska split. don't have the same interests. Not all the time. And those are two reliably red states. Okay? 
I mean, you could take, you know, two reliably blue states like Illinois and California. I was, well, I said Texas and Nebraska, but I'm going to be a little safer and say two reliable blue states of California. I wasn't aware that Texas yeah. and Nebraska came out against the Affordable Care uh, or against the uh, repeal of Affordable Health Care. That's only the one. That's the one policy. But, I mean, they have different alignments on other policies. But Illinois and California, two reliably blue states, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're not always going to agree. And so when the representatives from those two states go, well, they may agree the majority of the time, which is why they're Democratic and they're blue, but they're not always going to agree. And when they don't, it's the diffusing of power that prevents. What's the last big thing they disagreed on? I, I don't know. I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean. And I'm only saying that because I feel like this state lens that Hamilton and Madison and heck, all the founding fathers tend to view politics through at the time, I think it's probably where they're more wrong than anything else. Well, they seem to keep thinking that politics is going to continue to be dominated by the states as states. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest changes that was brought by the Constitution. Is post-Constitution, the states stop having so many positions as states, and they really... The positions they take are subsets of their political, you know, the, their political tendencies. See, I don't, I don't, I don't think that happened right away. I mean, maybe I'm just misinformed when it comes to history, but I think that is more a product of the modern fifty plus years of 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 you know where we used to think. I mean, even into the early 1900s, I think the average person would think of themselves as being a citizen of their state as opposed to just, I'm a, a U.S. citizen. And I don't have any actual data to back that up. But I know that well, I... You're right. You know, so far as they, you know, that was a change brought on by the Civil War. Okay. You know, so... Post-war, how things changed a lot. So, but, but along... I mean, that's, along that's a clear line you draw. Along with that, though, is the change mm-hmm. in how we govern ourselves and where we generally look for almost every issue now we go and look at the federal government and say, hey, federal government, do this, or hey, federal government, don't do that. And we believe that the federal government has the ability under the Constitution to basically legislate whatever they want. And that's how I think the average citizen looks at it. But they don't realize that the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution that Madison's arguing for here, is meant to have specific enumerated powers to the federal government. And if it's not specifically given to the federal government, it is reserved to the states. Period. End of story. And that has changed through the the Commerce Clause. And let me give you an example of this. Well, the Necessary and Proper Clause came in pretty early itself. Yeah. But here's a... Here's I mean, that's what the Federalists advanced from the get-go. So, so for those who haven't... Uh, who don't know the, the Commerce Clause, the Commerce Clause in the, the Constitution says that, you know, the, the uh, federal government can legislate and pass laws that deals with things that move in and about the several states in, uh, in the economy. And so where... Something is not specifically granted to the federal government to have the, the a specific power under the Constitution to be able to legislate. Modern practice is to say, to have the legislature say, well, because some portion of this article or thing moves amongst the several states in Congress, we have the ability to pass this law. And here's a perfect example of it. There is the federal partial birth abortion ban uh, that went into effect under the Bush administration. That law was passed because the uh, the federal government felt they could reach out and pass a law dealing with partial birth abortions nationally because the instrumentation used to perform those medical procedures is traded and sold in amongst the several states. And they use the Commerce Clause to be able to do that. That takes away power from the states and puts it at the federal level in a way uh, that I don't think Madison and the Founding Fathers envisioned when they envisioned states still being such a very important thing to the functioning of the federalist system. 
And we are, I think, in some ways losing that division between states and fe- and national and, and the real intent of the federalism uh, when we allow for all of these laws to be shoehorned and passed uh, through methods like the Commerce Clause when we want to have things happen on a national the scale. The you just laid out, to me, is an excellent example of why I feel that, in fact, Madison's faction's argument fails. Okay. In that, if you took Madison at face value, people would have beliefs and principles and institutional interests that are consistent, regardless of their ends, to the extent that they would say, we value this process and this institution and this line of reasoning so much, we're not going to use it even when it will get us a win, because that undermines our our intellectual integrity. What the underpinning of that, for example, is that you know many of the people who you know the many of the people who would advance that law up to passage and argue it through the Supreme Court, probably individuals who, in other contexts, have argued against the Commerce Clause a lot and said, "Oh, you know, states' rights you can't impinge on them because the Commerce Clause is overbought, etc." Okay. And that's nothing new for the sun. Again, just just to show that this is not something recent to us. A great example is right again before the Civil War. Leading up to the Civil War, there was a series of a, a number of Southern state presidents and James Buchanan, who might as well have been. He was from Pennsylvania. Right. He was very pro-Southern. And so the significance of that, though, is during that period of time, you had a strong Southern-dominated legislature, the Southern executive, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of pro-slavery uh, statute, statutes and laws passed. You know, some of the most famous, the Fugitive Slave Act, is you know extend the power of the federal government to go in and say, oh, there's some slaves from Alabama who somehow got to Massachusetts. You got to give them back, even though Massachusetts is banned slavery. Mm-hmm. And during that entire time, you know, all of these slaveholding powers were were great with the using the federal power to go into the, the states and enforce their rights to their slaves, and everything else, they were able to get through the national legislature favoring the right to, to hold slaves. But then, all of a sudden, Abraham Lincoln's elected president. All of a sudden, surprise, there is a bunch more northern, free, you know, uh, anti-slavery legislators elected. Surprise, what happens all of a sudden? States' rights, all these, all these southern states, out of the clear blue, Suddenly, have enshrined this idea of, well, the states under the Tenth Amendment, we have all these states' rights, the federal government can't, and you know, that you have the law scholars now, they still talk about how, oh, it's not one war for slavery, it's a war for states' rights. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. Because if you believe, if the southern states back then were so big on states' rights, they wouldn't have pushed the federal rights so far when they controlled the federal power. Okay. And when the first time it happened, it wasn't the last time it happened. Same thing has been happening in the last few decades where, you know, as far as I have seen, depending on who has control of the national power and who has control of the local power, the parties keep flipping their positions on whether they think federal or local power is more important. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's depressing, but it's true, I think, that it tends to undercut Madison's argument let me ask you then, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you agree with Madison that 
that there are factions, right? I mean, they're just going to happen. Right? Yeah. Okay. No, all right. Yeah, all right. No. All right. So let's let's yeah, run. That's human nature. That's human nature. Okay. And I think so. You're on board. There's going to be factions. Okay. And so, and I think you agree with him to the fact that you we're not going to be able to get rid of factions from a government standpoint. So we're down to agreeing with him that we've got to control the factions. And you know, when the faction is large, because I think you agree, when the faction is small, if it's they're out of control and they're just crazy, they can get voted out of office and. That, that deals with it. So we're down now to the, 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 the argument about what to do with the big faction, the national level faction, the one that's really has its hands in everything. And, and his solution is a large democratic republic will protect the minority, the individual from the large, massive, uh, faction or large political party. And we, the, the, the large democratic republic will protect the individual right and 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 the and the individuals um rights from the large faction and you're it sounds like suggesting that the large democratic republic is not the answer that that he's wrong in assuming that that will will protect the individual from the faction and am i understanding that's fair am i understanding maybe for the reasons you enumerated you know the social media the communication it's, I think those strengthen faction more than weaken it. Yes. So if that's what we're at, and if you're saying that, look, Madison, we've reached a point in history where your system no longer protects the individual's liberties from the large faction, what's the answer? I, I don't think there is an easy one. Okay. Um, I mean, unless, you know, one answer would be, I haven't seen it much, but yeah. I think it's theoretically possible that you could have a faction whose goals and mores and, and ethics are such that a core value of that faction is there's there's things we won't do there's you know there's things places we won't go there's principles that we have that we won't change just because it'll make it easier for us to win a certain thing well see you know, the closest thing we've had what well, is the reverence that people have you know historically held the constitution and i yeah. think that uh you know, that's not, that's just a general sense yeah. that people have. And, but, but I think if there's a faction that really meant that, if they meant what they said, that they were consistent of, yeah. the means don't always justify the ends, the means yeah. are also important. Yeah. That would help. I just haven't seen it. Well, of it. course. But yeah. And so, <laughs> but see, and there again, you, 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 the default then is, well, what we need is really good moral, you know, or ethical, religious, maybe religious subset of people to help steer the ship and write it and maintain from either of these large factions to make sure it doesn't go too far off the rails. But here again, Madison says, look, you can't rely on that. There's gotta, yeah. you've gotta have a system in place, not individuals in place, um, in order to preserve liberties for, uh, the citizen or for subsets. So uh, I don't know of a better system. I'm not a political science, um, I'm not saying we you know, overthrow the Republic. But. <laughs> I know you're not, but I'm just saying like, if you had to spitball an idea, if we say, you know what, it worked for a good 200 plus years, but it's now, it's not working anymore. Mm. Okay. The system's been overwhelmed. Mankind has created a new thing, yeah. a new animal, the modern political party that is, that has destroyed the, the functionality of the constitution to protect the liberty of the minority or the liberty of the individual from the tyranny of the majority. And if that's the solution, if that's where we're at and that's what we think, what is the solution to fix that? And, you know, I think you, know. <laughs> you can have, I think Madison does have a partial answer in that in theory, you could strengthen, you could strengthen people's loyalty to factions and goals 
to the extent that they said, you know what, I'm not just going to go along with my party yeah. when I disagree with them on something important. But so. they, people have to be prepared to deal with the consequences of that. Because you're right, it's true that, you know, the other answer is just the individual virtue of, you know, what, what Jefferson and other founding fathers talked about, you know, having educated citizenry, having a moral citizenry. But it's, it's harder when it's done in a disorganized fashion, even for people who focus on it. I know that even in social media and the factions I belong to, mm-hmm. I know I've experienced of late, there's several people who are part of my same political faction, for lack of, lack of a better word, yeah. who they'll go and they've, they've uh, made some, taken some positions that I'm like, uh, wait a second, yeah. I don't agree with that. That's, yeah. that's sort of crazy. Well, let me but look. I had to take them all off pause because I generally agree with these people on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And they went to a certain extent. It took me a moment where I had to consciously stop and think and like, am I going to be okay with this or not? Let me, let me ask you this because I want to jump back to an idea that we talked about about a month ago in the last – I think it was the last episode where we – And then we, I think we can start to segue out after that yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and ask. Okay. So as a possible solution because I asked the question and now I've thought of – uh, I want to want to float out another idea as a possible solution to the the current problem that I think we propose here. Um, if Madison ultimately says, "Look, bigger the bigger the better," and you got to have a large Democratic Republic, and that will guard against a, a, a particular faction from destroying the liberties and the rights of any individual. So, is our problem today that the current Democratic Republic of the United States is not large enough or diverse enough? to prevent a particular political party or faction from destroying the liberties and rights of the individual is the solution to our current goal for the United States to be even larger. Because we talked about, um, you know, getting involved with alignments and, 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 and spreading our, um, not, not turning inward towards the world, but the benefits that we have reaped when we have made alignments for security purposes when we worked with NATO and we have our allies around the world, have we reached a point in the modern world where the United States needs to become part of a larger democratic republic in and of itself? Where we need to, you know, if we were, if, if we ourselves were part of, of the, I'm just floating this out there. Like if somehow the EU and Britain before they exited and, uh, the United States and all of our allies, the close, our closest allies were in fact part of one world government and that we were some, you know, in much the same way the states are to the federal government, the fe- that the federal government is to this other higher level of government and such that you would have then an even larger body and even larger voting population. It and, wouldn't matter. You know, it wouldn't matter. You think in time, it wouldn't change a thing. Well, why not? Because, if it's that diverse, because of what you said, because if it's that diverse, the world big enough anymore, because the reason the world, the United States, some of the reasons the United States was so big and seemed so big back then was, mm-hmm. as you highlighted, how fast was your communication? Yeah. Very slow. Mm-hmm. Fast as a horse moves. You know, even into the 1800s. Or a train. Or a train. Fast as, yeah. a, or fast as a, a telegraph wire. Yeah. But, you know, the, the large, the existing large land size of America felt even bigger because of sparsely populated communications were slow. So... If there was any time you could actually say there was a competing factional loyalty that you had that might trump your party loyalty, it would be back then. Because if you lived 
in a frontier settlement that you might hear see a traveler or hear news from the outside world once in a great while, and it was only in a very limited fashion long after everything happened, yeah, you you wouldn't particularly care what somebody who's a leader of your party said if everybody in your town said something different. But but, but what if what if nowadays you, the whole world communicates instantaneously. I so understand. We can, but my, we can expand to the whole world, it wouldn't change anything. I don't know about that. I mean like like you know the Madison's theory is that the large democratic republic would protect against one faction from crushing the the, the liberties of the individual. If we're if we're saying we're at a point now where the current political factions have have overwhelmed that system that's in place, mm-hmm. does does do we need to plug ourselves into a larger democratic republic that would then frustrate? So you would still have your your national political party here. It it would slow their abilities, right? I mean, because they would have to then go over and and well, I you know. It, America, we would sit here and say, well, you know, all those people in Europe, but we would have to agree with, I mean, you know, like if it was a larger political body and another layer of diffusing of power, at a minimum, I think it would slow the, the factionalism ability to control everything because you would have factions in Europe that would be coming to the table the same way the factions in the United States would be coming to the same legislative body to argue for things or a faction from Australia coming and saying, Hey, we need to argue for things and have law certain passed. I, you know, there would still be two factions. Well, that maybe that's just different. That's, that's where I think it breaks down is that every time, say we absorb you, say the United States united completely with Mexico and Canada. Okay. There was not going to be four parties now. It's just the, the existing parties are probably, all, everyone's going to just subsume into two parties again, two factions, if we keep this the, the model we have right now. I'm assuming the Constitution continues. Yeah, this let's just say the same Constitution. Just more yeah. more, more bodies, more states, and, and more subsets of populations that are different interests than other subsets. And therefore, you have more representatives that have to report to constituents that are different from each other to some national body. And, yeah. and that – and then – Having a faction like a political party align all of those representatives from those various places would be that much more challenging. And I think that's Madison's point, which is the larger the democratic republic, the safer the individual liberty because, you know, the political party or whatever would have a harder time assuming and amassing power and then forcing everybody in it to go a certain way. And But that's not played out. It, well, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be playing out currently. Uh, and so my, it never has. you know, never has. well, I don't, you know, my, I guess I think we're going to have yeah. to disagree on this one yeah. because the way, the, how I have seen it play out in America, in my opinion, is this, the structure of the Constitution and our government in practice seems to favor a Hegel, Hegelian type dynamic of basically you always have two factions across the country always fighting with each other and then if one is ever eliminated and destroyed another comes out to take its place mm-hmm. and that's played out in American history over and over again there's always been two parties and everybody generally lines up in one of those two okay. the only times there's been essentially one has been exceptional times like during the Civil War in the northern states, which was the United the whole United States at that time, yeah. there was the Union Party because we were at war. Yeah, you know. But generally, 
And so that's why I believe that, say the United States grew somehow to encompass the entire world, we'd still have two parties, the parties would just be different. But I still think under the Constitution, it favors having two warring factions, and when push comes to shove, people would line up under one of the two. It's All that's different is what those parties believe at any given time. Because as you and I, I think, both agree, the Republican Democratic Party now and what they believe 50 years ago, each of them is probably a very different thing. It's only, yeah. I mean, it's a semantics issue that people I often see on Facebook where people say, well, the, 50 years ago, the Democrats did this, or 50 years ago, the Republicans did that. Well, that's sort of misleading because they've, and sometimes the positions of the party is completely reversed. Yes. Uh, but I just think that the factions argument of Madison doesn't play out well. So I, I'm going to disagree with you. I would agree with you that even if for some reason, hold on, I'm going to agree with you to the extent that I, I agree that even if the United States were to encompass the entire world and there was only yeah. one world government and it was still functioning under the current document of the constitution, that you would probably have two dominant political parties and people would either be A or they'd be B. But where Madison is right is that the larger the Democratic Republic and the more diverse of a population that it that is underneath that umbrella, the harder it is, I think, for, and he, that he thought, and I agree with him, for any one political party to take co- total control over the power in it and run roughshod over the, the party that's out or any individual even and take away their and crush their, their liberties and, and along the way. And that's his goal is to protect the liberties of the minority from the tyranny of the majority. And, you know, uh, we'll throw you that bone. OK. And we'll throw you that bone insofar as thinking about the world, the, the EU, the European Union is actually a great example in your favor of. They, those countries are a lot more different from each other than our states are different from each other. Yeah. And so if you did that writ large, where people, where the different regions were so different that they actually had a stronger regional differences, yeah. there might be more assertion of those differences rather than the part, as, as regions rather than subsets of the party. And I but think I, and this is, there, this is, is the EU is a mess. Well, hold on, <laughs> hold on. But the EU, the EU is a mess because as we talked about, they're, they're trying to do it under the Articles of Confederation with a weak federal system. If you took the current, yeah. the current stronger federal system, but you applied it to extremely diverse regions, I, you know, the, even if you had a one political party that had power, the, the representatives from those diverse regions and just serving diverse constituencies would be harder to align. And that is the benefit of the diverse, large democratic republic is that even when you get any one political party gets all of its bodies and all of the enough of the legislative seats, getting all those men and women who agree on a particular agenda to serve the party's interest is difficult. And you see that and it has played out in America at times. And that was my point with the ACA. But maybe the current political animal is finally overwhelming and that the current United States is not large enough to keep the current political battle animal at bay anymore. And that, you know, can Madison's system be taken further, it just hypothetically, to an extreme of saying, 
you know, a, what we need to solve this situation, to beat back the modern political be, uh, animal and, 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 and prevent it from, from destroying liberty, is to have an even larger and more diverse populace uh, so that, that the representatives, even if they are all Republican or the all are Democratic, that, that getting all of the Republican guys and women to align and carry out a particular agenda will be even more difficult because they'll be coming from even more diverse sub uh, constituency bases that they're representing. So that's that is just a hypothetical that I, that I wanted to throw out as, as a potential answer to the question, which is what do we do? We're sitting here 200 plus years later. I think Madison's generally correct, but the system is being frustrated by the modern political beast. Okay, hypothetical then. How do you fix it? What do you do? And I don't know. It's just a it's food for thought. I know we've kind of strayed a bit into more just conversation in this episode as opposed to really I do think it was digesting. very cunning of us to illustrate by dividing ourselves into factions this episode. Well, you know. The issue of factions in Federalist Paper 10. I think we so, have uh, said what we needed to say about, about Federalist Number 10. 10. And uh, hopefully. And all of its many factions. Yes. And the struggles that they undergo, whether you buy Madison's argument or whether you don't. I think so. So, Kerry, is always uh, a good time um, chatting yes. with you here. Um, and we'll get this up as soon as we can. Uh, I'll get it out. Great. And um, we'll go from there. See and then everybody in episode 11. See everybody next time. Thanks again, guys. Bye.